Hi, everybody, and welcome to this episode of May I Interrupt. We're here at the American Academy of Optometry where we're getting the opportunity to interview some really very interesting and cool people in the area of eye care until today. So if I could, wow. this is my partner in crime here, Dr. Jason Jedlicka. Crime I, is right I, after that comment. I, I'm Craig Norman. I guess our guest didn't hear it though. He's not no, he's staring busy at me. fixing his mic over yeah, there. Yeah. So. so Craig, I got to tell you, for, for day three of doing this and being at this meeting, you're looking pretty good today. Thank you. You look sharp. I feel sharp. I'm surprised you're holding up so well under I, all I this. I feel sharp. Yeah. But you know, in the time of COVID, maybe it's because I'm taking a shower every day now. Yeah, yeah, that would something new to start. Yeah, yeah I like exactly. that, right? Yeah. Exactly. Anyway, so today we have Dr. Clark Chang. Uh, uh, Clark is uh, a really valued expert in a number of areas within eye care, and we're going to explore some of that uh, today. Clark, come on over. Sure. How are you doing? Welcome. Good. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Good to have you, Clark. Thank you, Jason. Thank you, Greg. Thank you. I love how you guys uh, took, it was so difficult to find, to find words to describe me. You really well, did deep. No, I, yeah. I had plenty to say, but Craig always steals my thunder. So I was going to make some comment on how you must have the, the coolest case of eyeglass frames of anybody I've ever met. So take note, take note. Yeah. I know. And this is like the third day in a row I've seen Clark with, the, with uh, different, and I know Craig, I've seen, I was just saying on our last episode, this is the third day and different frames every day. Yeah. And your frames are very cool, Craig. And Thank they look you. great on you. But well, they can't match Clark's stuff. Well, Clark, Clark, I mean, come on, guys. Right, right. My, the viewers out there, please vote. Yeah. One for Clark. <laughs> right. Two for Craig. Two for Craig. <laughs> hey, so do you, do you carry a case with like six slots or something with your eyeglasses for travel? Um, I have a, a case for, for each glasses and they're in the little compartments when I travel. Yes. Nice. Right. Nice. Yes. Like I have one of those as well. And, and they're very cool, right? The, yeah. You don't have yeah. to worry about where they are. You just throw the box in. I have a case for my one pair of glasses I own. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> one, one you own. And then I have a large bag of all the contact lenses I like to wear. So uh, I see. I'm just different. I do mine on eye instead of in front. I see. I see. So Clark, um, tell us what's going on today in your life. Ah, well, wait, I mean, wait, wait, wait. Can I interrupt, please? Please. May you. You're doing, this, may you you're doing this again, Craig. <laughs> Clark, tell us a little bit about you, how you got where you are and what you do with your life every day. Well, I couldn't do what I do without Jason and Craig. Of course, that's a given. Okay. Right. Because right. um, they saw me when I was, you know, without revealing their age, they saw me when I was up and coming. Yeah. And I'm still up and coming. Yeah. 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 So <laughs> you get to, getting toward the top of the hill here, I think. Um, no, but seriously, obviously, this, uh, this is such a great time for, as you know, I was involved in a lot of, uh, you know, patient care and, and patient care related research in um, keratoconus and cross linking. And so I just think that this is a very exciting time, especially with a lot of the options that we have available now, such as the you know, specialty lenses that Jason designed. I mean, it's just, it, there's so many tools that we can now use to make our patient's life better. And I just really feel like there's no time like today. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I can remember, again, dating myself 25-ish years ago when I started fitting specialty lenses. Yeah. And you had a keratoconus patient come in and it was basically corneal GPs or surgery. Yeah. And now it's, we have so many things with the different types of lenses, the different right. types of treatments, putting aberration control on lenses. It's like, I feel like 
I, I don't ever want to get to the point where any of my patients ever need a graft because we've managed them through all yeah. their treatment things properly before we get to that stage. So it's definitely the, the paradigm for managing keratoconus is completely different than it was even just 25 years ago. You know, so building on that a little bit. So Clark, now that cross-linking's, you know, very widely used, right? Right. What do you foresee that to do, or what would it, its impact be as far as keratoconic patients over the next 10 or 15 years? Right. You know, that's such a great question because there's so many angles to go at that in right. terms of what, you know, what both of you had just said. And that is we now have more than one option, right? It used to be it's a dichotomy of management where we basically force patients to say, do you want door number one, corneal GV? Right. Do you want what's behind door number two, corneal transplant? Or you don't want either, you're out of luck, right? right. And that creates a psycho, in, at least from my perspective, that creates a psychological barrier for patients regardless of how good the outcomes are from our perspective, what their vision is, they become harder and harder to manage, which I think is the reason why there's some studies that we that have been talked about with regard to, is there really a keratoconus personality? Right. And sometimes right. I wonder how much of that is induced and how much that is really inherent in keratoconus patients. And so the, the difference in the paradigm that both of you had you know, alluded to earlier is that if we can stabilize patients at hopefully the earliest possible point when they are progressing or when progression is being detected, that then has synergistic value to the optical treatment that we can provide patients right. to make their quality of life, not just their visual performances, but their quality of life as pristine as possible from very early on. Mm -hmm. and, I th and I think that psychologically can, will, will make their satisfaction much higher just simply because they know that they were taken care of from the very beginning mm -hmm. and that we now have the tools to extend the longevity of the fact that, you know, what the, for example, the challenge used to be that every few months, every six months, every year, if they progress, corneal GP has to be changed because they're no longer sure. comfortable. Sure. Well, if you could stabilize that, and that means that the, the lens that you work so hard at fitting your patients with, now they can work for a long period of time and you're doing minor changes right. at every single visit. That, that impact to the patient, it's sort of like your myope knowing that, oh, this time my prescription doesn't need right. to be updated. Yeah. That's such a relief from their shoulder. Yeah. Well, and, and right. one thing you mentioned that, and, and quality of life, really at the end of the day, that is maybe the most important part of this. And yet it's something we often don't consider. We're so focused on, is the fit good? Right. Is the vision good? And it's like, okay, well maybe, maybe the fit doesn't have to be perfect. Maybe the vision has to be perfect. The patient has a quality of life. And, and one thing that um, historically was when you talk to someone about keratoconus, right. what was, we talked to that patient first time, well, you have this condition and it's a progressive condition. Uh, it's going to get worse. Where am I going right. to be in a year or two or five? And cross-linking can kind of say, well, we hopefully have taken that progressive progression concern off the patient's mind. Right. So they're not living every day like, when is this going to get worse or how long till I need yep. it? No, you don't. Maybe, you know, 98% or whatever that you don't have to worry necessarily about you know, when it's going to get worse, it hopefully won't get worse. Yeah. So that's like, a huge looking at some... relief to somebody too, to, right. to say, I've taken your progressive condition and I've taken out the progression aspect of it for the yeah. most part. I was looking at some iBank information recently. Yeah. You know, they put out that annual report yes. of 
And of course, it's hard to judge, but there was a 20% decrease in the utilization of corneal transplant. Exactly. Right. And now we don't know if that's time of COVID directly related. It's yeah. probably at least indirectly related. But I think as we look forward, that there probably is going to be a lessening of that. The I would think corneas that are needed, be. like and probably significant decrease. Yeah. Right? And and not to divert too far off of Clark here, but. Um, one of the things that I just recently, and we were talking about this yesterday with aberration control, is what was our criteria in the past for sending someone for a graft was, well, their visions, right. even with their corneal lens or sclera, they're still only 20, right. 50, 20, 60. Well, guess what? If I could correct their aberrations and get them back to 2025, 20, yeah. 2030, right. that's a whole nother aspect of avoiding. I, I just... I see graphs continuing to go down yep. over time. First, it was because, A, people aren't getting that as bad as they were. And now it's going to be, well, even in those patients that have progressed and, and didn't get crossing, we can correct their vision better than we ever can. Yeah. And right. I think it's really exciting just to be able to say, you know, because graphs are great when they work out great. Sure. But yeah. when they don't work out great, it can be ugly. And, yeah. so. and not to mention their progressive changes that our patient takes on with over the lifespan of a graft, right? Loretta Shakat had actually one of our foremost experts on corneal transplant in the United States, had done a lot of research and had presented some of her findings about late onset astigmatism changes and refractive changes yeah. in a, as a transplant uh, ages. So again, that's another reason why despite, even if we have good outcome, as Jason alluded to, with corneal transplant patient. There's always that, again, there's always that hindrance that they know things, they may be late onset changes that um, they don't want to hear about or they hope not to experience. Um, and I'm also having a lot of um, fun with these aberration control lenses, mm -hmm. I have to say. Um, given, really given a lot of patients who are still not performing up to the point what that they need in their daily lives, and or they self-classify, oh, I failed scleral lenses, I failed this lens. And what they really meant was they didn't see what they needed to see in order to function. Right. And they tell themselves that therefore, they go and tell you know their surgeons that I, I fail contact lenses, what's next for me? And I really, I agree with Jason. So, uh, so these, although I think I foresee that we're still gonna get better with these aberration control algorithms. So. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, but currently it's already helping a lot of patients in my mind who have previously failed lenses because they feel like they have poor visual performances. Um, and then if I could very quickly, I don't wanna divert away from that topic because I would love to talk about some of our contact lens advancements, but in a uh, with regard to the iBank report, like mm -hmm. you said, there have been studies in Europe yep. um, looking at comparing the rate of uh, corneal transplant utilization X number of years prior to cross-linking, mm -hmm. and then uh, X numbers of years after cross-linking, and compare the rates over to different interval, and given some time in between for hopefully cross-linking to kind of take some sort of effect, or at least for the effects, the impact to surface, and they did. Um, actually conclude that, uh, and I believe one was from Norway, and concluded that there's about 50% of, 25 to 50% of reduction in the need for corneal transplant no. after cross-linking mm -hmm. had been introduced, years after cross-linking. Like how many years after? 10 years? It's 15? either three or seven, okay. and because there were two. I think one may be three years, one may be seven years, or over seven years, I couldn't remember the right. exact, but it was in 2015, 14-ish that yeah. the publications were published. Right. So well, it makes to, perfect sense. I mean, we would expect that. Sure. We would hope that. And and uh, again, the longer time goes by, that should just continue to drop 
because there's always going to be a number of patients kind of who've, who've, uh, who are beyond where cross-linking is going to save them. They've scarred up badly and they've just kind of put it off, put it off. And as they get older, they're probably going to still elect for it. But those patients are going to disappear for the most part, hopefully, because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. they will never have got to that point. So I think over time, we're just going to see it dropping too, which is exciting. That it will be exciting. Yep. So you mentioned specialty lenses, of course. So what's what's going on with specialty lenses with used and saved? Anything different or other than, of course, the aberration, aberration controls right? that we talked about, mm-hmm. which, again, I think is really exciting. Um, we shouldn't underestimate the the um, amount of work, though, I think. that you, It, it, it still takes very sure. careful patient selection. It takes a lot more, you know, alert in terms of what patients, when patients are complaining about their lenses, are they complaining about residual high-order aberration symptoms? Mm-hmm. I feel like some of us think that contact lens should take care of everything and we sometimes don't hear patients' complaints or we're not correlating their complaints because we're thinking, well, you're sitting in the chair, you're reading 2020, so what's the problem? So I feel like there's a there needs to be a shift of mindset as well that the quality of vision is not the same as visual acuity. And we need to kind of train ourselves to be more in tune uh, to patients' feedback. Um, but I think the other other excitements in, in my life, and it's sad that these are the excitements in my life. Uh, <laughs> that's right, I have no life. Um, are, are like, basically just, I think, you know, again, going back to what Jason has said, we used to, it wasn't long ago that the only thing we offer our patients were corneal GPs. Right. You want contact lenses as corneal GPs. Oh, they dislodge during your sports activity. <laughs> Too bad you have to buy another pair, right. right? And so now we have all these understanding of scleral shape, which again, both of you contributed a lot to that to that field of uh, of knowledge in our uh, in our area. Um, we have so much knowledge about scleral shape and how to handle that. Uh, freeform optics and and manufacturing of the lenses and that that had largely made scleral lenses uh, again that's not the only lens but it, it's it just it made it such a successful platform that we can offer any type of our patients whether it's ocular surface whether it's keratoconus and you know we have to remember keratoconus patients and irregular cornea patients they have ocular surface diseases sure. too yeah. of course and there's been some studies that, when um, I know like um, one of our colleagues, Amy Now, had actually, and Donald Corbs uh, associate, they have been working on looking at prevalence of NGD and dry eyes in keratoconus patients. Mm-hmm. And so some exciting work coming, confirming what we know, and that is keratoconus patients can have dry eyes too, can have other ocular surface disease that um, may be benefited by the correct lens selection. And we don't just have scleral lenses, we still have continual improvement in corneal GP and hybrid lenses and soft custom lenses. I remember Greg being one of the first that brought in soft keratoconus lenses from UK into US. So all those tools are all in play and it just, with great tools and great power comes responsibility. So we need to know how to use them and when to use them. So so that that is what I'm really excited about every day, learning from these two experts. do you think that, um, and I don't know if anybody has an answer for this, but do you think that the scleral lens market, which is like this, yeah. right? Do you think it's reaching this plateau at this point as so many of those previous wares of corneal lenses that were unsuccessful, as we sift through all of those, right? So right. They're, they're not there as much anymore. Yeah. 
Do we think that we're reaching a plateau as far as the usage? Of specifically scleral lenses or all specialty lenses? No, sclerals in particular. I don't. I personally don't think that we have reached plateau for a few reasons. Number one, and again, if we just stay in the space of keratoconus patients just mm -hmm. a little bit more, because again, scleral lenses can be for a lot of patients, not just keratoconus of patients. Course. But even if I just cherry pick my keratoconus space, we're now learning through epidemiology studies that keratoconus prevalence is higher than we used yeah. to think. Right. So we're, we're now able to end with advanced technology such as shine fluke imaging, te, um, tomographers, Pendicam, Galilee, have right. your pick. Um, we, have, we have Pendicam at Will's Eye, but uh, having advanced instrumentation have also helped us identify more patients and understanding why they're having subpar optical performances where the anterior surface sometimes are not, still not showing you right. any right. problem. Right. And there's no defect for us to catch. And now we know, oh, it's coming from other parts of the eye, of the cornea. So I think there's still just, just that alone. The detection technology getting so much better and letting us know what stage the keratoconus patients are at and will allow us to be able to facilitate transition into scleral lenses sooner and not to, you know, and that's not not to forget that you also, you know, you have CSP that can tell you scleral profile. So all of a sudden you can predict which patient needs more of a customized perimeter because right. of the scleral touristy. Yeah. And so we could stop them before they reach a point of thinking, oh, I failed another lens. I'm never going to try contact right. lenses again. Right. So just for those two reasons, and there are many more, I think we have yet to see where the peak is with scleral yeah. lenses. So interestingly yeah. enough, in the, in the U.S., still the contact lens, the GP manufacturers, right, still about 60% of the lenses they're making are corneal Corneal lenses. Well, ortho K is a big part of that. Right. Multifocals right. are, you know, there's still no better method that we have of managing presbyopia yeah. than a good corneal For GP sure. multifocal because of the translating effect. So, um, but, but I think, you know, maybe what you're going with and, and what I'm thinking is when you talk about scleral growth, you know, we, we, uh, it grew as we moved our irregular cornea patients into right. them. It grew as we moved our OSD patients into them where will the next bump be? Will yeah. there be some great revolution in presbyopia management? Do we figure out a way to put, you know, induce higher order aberrations on a lens purposefully for the correction of presbyopia? Yeah. And that'll be another bump. I think sclerals I have so much more potential. We just have to find innovative ways to use yeah. them that we're not doing yet. Yeah. yeah. And, that's, that's and well if put. I may just one more thing, because it's such a great point. I think exploration a different segment of population and knowing Correct. how to select them what how to apply different tools onto them is going to bring about another wave of uh, growth in specialty content lens market and scleral lens um, uh, content lens market and I recently gave a lecture on presbyopia management just because just yeah. to kind of piggy piggyback on what Jason just said I brought up this notion that you know we obviously know we could do a lot with contact lens optics. We can use extended depth of focus optics, very similar to some of the new technology in uh, IOLs that they right. use in cataract right. surgery. What if we're able to understand patients' visual demands and their lifestyle and fit them properly 
using, say, different type of multifocal optics for presbiopes, maybe a small pupil aperture, because you could create peripheral blur sure. in the contact sure. lens to create an optical pupil, yeah. right? And that gives you extended depth of focus. What if we use that to drive our future recommendation of what type of IOL lens that these patients should go into? Right. We could, we could it, we're grooming them with our contact lens selection. Yeah. And we know that whether it be monovision, whether it be just the asphericity level, because you can match that with an IOL, or whether it's extended depth of focus, whether optical or small pupil, we could use that to drive the selection of what, what lens surgeons should use in the future when patients um, are ready for cataract surgery. And a lot of them may be coming back to contact lenses too. So there's a lot there that I think will affect the way that our optometric colleagues will be managing these presbyopia patients in the future mm. that I think are very exciting. You know, what you just said is fascinating, really. If that Me was or Jason? No. <laughs> it's it's yeah, you, yeah, Jason. No, no, it, it's you. <laughs> that the, um, I don't ever see anything fascinating <laughs> to create. Yeah. <laughs> but to be able to use it as a diagnostic tool prior to surgery and not make some more permanent yeah. Well, and I, and I, think, I think the one issue that. you run into, and, and, and we in theory have the ability to do that now or have but when we wait till patients are already have a significant cataract right. it's hard exactly because now you're right. looking through the blur of the cataract but again for those patients who are looking more of a refractive lens technology procedure clear lens extraction with a, you know so this is the patient who's pre-cataract yep. but wants a refractive you know option with an iol spot on i mean i think those patients would be great to, to simulate that with sclerals or some other device yeah. Yeah. or some other lens, yeah. So um, one thing I wanted to talk to you about, and, and, and I know that, again, you see a lot of patients who have had cross-linking, and just the, the hats you wear, you get, to, you get to see a lot of what's going on in the cross-linking world, um, and yet you also have this expertise around the diagnosis and management of keratoconus, and you work with Oculus on a lot of fronts, you know, talking about pentacam interpretation. One of the things that that I've wanted to look at, I don't know if you've looked at this at all, mm -hmm. again, having the aberration control right. or ability to measure it, is is there a way for someone who doesn't have, you know, an aberrometer, for example, right. um, to utilize back surface corneal shape to predict the need for aberration correction? Can we, for example, and I've seen this a little bit on a handful of cases that I've looked at it, can I correlate somebody's HOA scan through a scleral, mm -hmm. what's residual now, right. with their pentacam posterior float? Mm -hmm. And I think you find that they actually correlate really sure. well, and that perhaps even the steeper the posterior float, the higher the coma that's seen mm -hmm. through the scleral. I mean, I think this is kind of fascinating. I think the pentacam is such a amazing tool i mean i really do what it can do for us right. in the realm of keratoconus but also just in there's there's probably things we haven't even unlocked with it yet right. so again anything about your utilization of pentacam for keratoconus patients that we could learn about yeah no so again obviously it, in complete agreement with what jason said no surprise and that is we used to think that the using any specialty lenses to neutralize higher order aberration that any irregular cornea patient is experiencing, why is there still a small group of patients that we know for a fact that they still have, they still underperform? And 
obviously the answer is residual high order aberration. And therefore, and, and knowing that the contribution, although we never could quite localize where exactly, what do we exactly mean by residual high order aberration? And you know, just like all things optics in, in human eye, majority of the contribution should be coming from your cornea. And therefore, majority of the residual aberration should then be coming from or stemming from your posterior cornea. Right. And that's the reason why then the, the, high, the residual HOA map should really match very closely to the posterior flow if we if you have access to appendix sounds like a study we need to do together <laughs> right but but my utilization though another way to utilize it will be looking at it from the other perspective and that is how can we predict somebody who may potentially need these aberration control and that is if you examine the difference between their interior and posterior elevation map if there's great amount of misalignment mm -hmm. you likely want to educate the patient to say hey by the way before I put the lenses on, there is a chance that you're likely going to need these advanced optics because some of the noises, because that's what I tell my patient, I talk to them about the uh, aberration control as noise canceling technology. Right. My oh, I, like, lenses, I like that, yeah. Because they understand what that means yeah. in the headphone. Um, so you have a lot of noise that may be created by your post, that by the back part of your lens that may even be worse once I correct everything on the interior by putting a content lens yeah. on. Because what patients are confused with at times is that I think my vision is worse with the lens you gave me and I thought it was supposed to help. And what it is is they have neuro adapted to a yes. lot of these aberration profiles. So even though it looks bad to you and I because we're normal cornea, right. their, the, their brain had tuned it down already yeah. like an auto-tune. Auto yeah. So they don't experience the amount of HOA that we think we're, we are seeing in the instrument. So after we reduce that from the interior side, all, all, all of a sudden the brain is saying, oh my God, it's like, this is so bad. The posterior residual is not great. So that's a different way of utilizing your looking at interior and posterior. And, telling the patient ahead of time, they'll think that, oh my God, you're a magician. You actually predicted what exactly is gonna happen. Yeah, I think there's no question that we, we all, everybody who works with keratoconus has those patients where you look and you think, you look at their topographical map, you think, oh, this isn't that bad. Right. Mild, moderate case, right. perfect for a GP. I'm gonna be a hero. Cornea's clear, you slap the lens on, 20, 30, minus two, best corrected. Yeah. What's going on here, yeah. you know? And, uh, and, and those sometimes are the they think worse than how they started. Yeah. And, and yeah. maybe they are, maybe because uh, because through their glasses, they're also 20, 30 minus two, but they're used to that optic exactly. and that visual presentation. They're not used to what you're showing them. So you might say, even though it's a little clear, you mean you don't, this doesn't clear up all your doubles and yeah, no, this is just as bad. It's a different level of double or, or my ghosting now moved from yeah. peripheral to central now. <laughs> right? Now yeah. you've made it worse. It, Right. To an extent, right. yeah. Right. And that's because we're not looking, we're not used to looking at where the source of the residual is coming from. And that's why something like PandaCamp can be extremely helpful. Yeah, well, when you're doing, when, and you know, again, placido disc, wonderful tool. It was the standard, again, for corneal imaging sure. forever. Um, but when we do a, um, a, a placido disc where you're only getting anterior information, right. you don't... You then, then you go put a GP on, you think, well, I don't understand why this isn't making everything better. I, I'm masking all of it. Right. You haven't measured all of it right. or you right. haven't seen all of it. All that's right. why you. Right. So that's where Pentacam really, it opens up a whole different perspective, not just again for managing keratoconus patients right. and looking for progression, but understanding their visual complications of the disease. Too. This is so, one of the few times that uh, I've seen 
Craig is lost for words because he's shocked by our brilliance. <laughs> Yeah, especially yours. Is that fair to say? Is that fair to say? I think he was more shocked with how well you matched the neon of the light behind you. So. Yeah. That's great. So we just have a couple minutes left. Okay. And Jason, do you have any last questions? Well, you'd yeah. Like to ask I, Clark? I, I again, I know that that Clark sees things that we don't get to see because of just what he gets to do. But um, is there anything that I should know as someone who co-manages cross-linking patients? <laughs> Is there anything I should be looking for long-term with their corneal shape? Again, we're going to doing pentacams before. We're doing pentacams right. annually afterwards. Right. Um, is there anything that I should expect to see over time with these patients as I see more of them? Sure, sure. Um, yeah, that, that's a really great question because a lot. Of, it took us a long time to adapt because FDA just, you know, in 2016, just, you know, it was only four or five years ago when cross-linking was sure. approved in U.S. Um, and therefore, I feel like a lot of our colleagues are just adapting to the this new paradigm that you had mentioned, mm -hmm. stabilizing, extending the longevity of the contact lenses, having synergy between these two different treatment modality so that we can reduce the utilization of corneal transplant. But remember collagen tissue turns over, right? Very mm -hmm. slowly, but it mm -hmm. turns over. It used to be at the beginning when I was doing, prior to FDA uh, approval, when I was doing a lot of research work, uh, collecting data on cross-linking, we used to think that they were, um, that collagen may turn over in your cornea in three years. Mm -hmm. So we thought maybe the effect of cross-linking would only be three. Okay. Right. However, now there are papers saying, publications saying it's probably seven or okay. longer. So you're seeing more long-term data from outside of US and, and I, I know there's a 10-year outcome paper that's going to come out soon within U.S. that uh, some of these papers have shown that this, despite supposed, supposed uh, turnover rate of collagen, of collagen tissue in your cornea, that patients, still 80-somewhat percent of patients remain stable mm -hmm. after uh, 10, a, 7, mm -hmm. 8, 10 years. Mm -hmm. And the longest follow-up that I've read outside of U.S. is up to 13, okay? so. It, there's no doubt that majority of our keratoconus patients are still going to, as long as they avoid eye rubbing. So that's one thing that we should continue to talk to them about, making sure that we're controlling their ocular sure. surface disease, uh, allergy condition, that anything that, stimul that provides stimulus for eye rubbing. But also not to forget that there's a small amount of patients that possibly could need a second treatment pending yes. when they were treated. If they were treated very young, similar to how we tell patients about corneal transplant. If I'm gonna do a transplant when you're 20, the likelihood of you needing, yeah. a, even if without rejection, the likelihood of you needing a second and a third is pretty good. Right. So therefore, if you're treating really early and those are the more aggressive keratoconus patients, even with cross-linking, there is a need to use instruments like, you know, topographer or um, or tomographer like Pentacam to monitor whether or not their keratometry, their K-max, um, or their elevation profile is actually changing. And there's a Arvo poster from 2020 that actually suggested looking at seven over seven years of follow-up, um, seven or ten that they recommend that we start watching patients very carefully with more regular examination starting at year five after okay. cross-linking. Okay. So that's something that I would recommend that, I mean, I think we should be following these patients annually For at sure. least, mm -hmm. but we should 
educate our patient as such so they're not surprised if they're the very small group of patients, five, ten percent, that actually needs a second treatment. Um, because that is ultimately, again, talking about the psychological impact to patients. That is what's going to preserve not just their visual performance, but their quality of life over in the long run. Right. Yeah. No, I agree. And, and I know that some of the early data showed a very low percent, 2% retreatment, but that was limited time frame. One and, year, and the longer years. we go out, we're right. seeing it'll probably grow. And, and, and I, I have my first um, retreatment in my own office recently with a college age keratoconic patient who had a repeat treatment uh, about four years after his initials. So right. I, I agree. And I think that we, we can't forget that even though cross-linking does stabilize and is a benefit uh, and can be a permanent uh, it's not necessarily always going to be, yeah. so don't forget about that. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. What, a, what a great discussion. Clark, thank you so much for coming by today. Thank you, thank you for having me. We got a couple of housekeeping items to take care of here before we let Clark go. Okay. First of all, let's do that. don't forget about the merchandise. So uh, golf balls. I lost my water bottle. There we go. Water bottles with May I Interrupt, Clark. There you go. Thank you for being on the show. Uh, and... I'll do, I'll, do yeah, here. I'll do Craig's job here. I'll do Craig's job. If you scan our QR code here, this will take you to the May I Interrupt uh, YouTube site where you can subscribe so you don't miss an episode ever. And you can go back and see our episodes from season one when, uh, when I routinely uh, showed up Craig on the set. So. Jason, you're pushing me out of this thing. I am pushing you're taking you out over my bit, responsibilities. So I am, I you're am. talking about what I'm supposed to talk about. What's the deal? Uh, you know, Craig, I've been lobbying for a new partner for a while. So. <laughs> Vote and, one. And Number one for Clark. Clark. But, Clark. <laughs> trust me, Craig, if, if we ever did bump you off the show, I'd still have you back as a guest once in a wow, while. Wow, <laughs> that is so great. Thank you, everybody, to this episode of May I Interrupt. Thank you for Oculus for sponsoring this. And really, it's a wonderful thing that we're doing here at the American Academy of Optometry Meeting. Please stay tuned for future episodes. Thank you.